sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at rethreaded.com and by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, happy 2024, and I have a susical 2023 health year in review. Then... Our yearly medical roundtable gives us a preview of healthcare 2024 with our experts answering your questions. But first, I know that it seems that we focus on the worst of headlines when there's so much to celebrate. To keep the mood light as our holidays continue, I turn to a grade school favorite when it comes to keeping the season magical. Dr. Seuss. Here are your 2023 trending health headlines in about a minute, as told in a Dr. Seuss style. Now, in 2023, health stories unfurled. In Dr. Seuss's world, healthcare twirled. Vaccines danced, oh, what a sight, defeating infectious foes with viral might. Health policies, a lively play, but universal access is kept at bay. Ending healthcare disparities improved just a slight, but the cause is just beginning to take flight. Mental health no longer hidden spoke its truth, its stigma partly ridden. Telehealth soared on policy wings, connecting brains with digital strings. Climate change health policies sprouted under a healthcare moon for a planet and people, a harmonious tune. Gene whispers, crisper tales told, in a susical land, the future unfolds. So here's to health in whimsical rhyme, onward to 2024, a magical time. Now, joining us today to add perspective and delve into these headlines, and I don't believe they'll be rhyming when they answer for us, uh, for our monthly medical roundtable show is a powerhouse team that we bring back with uh, all veterans. We have Dr. Joseph Driskowski. He is a practicing neurologist, a professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Driskowski, welcome back. Thank you very much. Always an honor to be here. It's such a pleasure. We also have Hanadi Hamadi. Uh, she is an associate professor at the Brooks College of Health at the University of North Florida here in Jacksonville. Welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me today. It's so good to have you here. Dr. Amy Hessler, she's another uh, returning veteran with our group. Uh, she's a practicing neurologist here in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Dr. Hessler, welcome as always. Thanks, Joe. No rhyming for me. That was pretty entertaining. <laughs> so fun to be here. Okay, so we got that out there early. We No rhyming for Dr. Hessler. And then uh, Mr. Chad Nielsen. Uh, Chad is the Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at U of Health Jacksonville, 
and an epidemiologist and knows all things human bugs. Chad, we always, always welcome you. Thanks, Joe. It's always a pleasure being on the show. It's great to have you. And we're going to start actually, Chad, with you. So as we look at 2023 and then uh, 2024, we know that bugs in all shapes, forms, and sizes continue to march across the globe, uh, literally laughing at our human-made borders, and they cause death and disease. Uh, from COVID-19's transition to being endemic to skyrocketing rates of scourges like syphilis, uh, 2023 uh, really did continue our focus on infectious diseases. But I'm going to ask a more specific question to you, Chad. Um it, it, the big thing about COVID-19 is that we kind of, it, it really changed this year. And I wondered if you could comment on how has the world progressed in terms of managing and mitigating COVID-19? Sure. So I do believe significant progress was made in 2023, although some challenges, of course, will still remain. Global vaccination rates have increased substantially, with a large portion of the population now having immunity through vaccination. This has led to significant decreases in severe cases, hospitalizations, and deaths compared to previous years. Additionally, treatment options have increased, allowing for earlier and more effective treatment. On the public health logistical side, early detection systems and improved surveillance infrastructure have really enabled swifter responses to localized outbreaks and definitely prevented uh, potential new waves from escalating. But uh, challenges do still remain. Uh, although vaccines and treatments are more widely available, those availability issues do still exist in low and middle income countries. And with new variants continuing to increase and surge in different parts of the population, the, the risk for severe cases in those nations is persistently high. Chad, one of the other things that I wonder about, and I know our listeners will be wondering, is given that your role is really kind of in the surveillance and epidemiology, was there any very notable emerging infectious disease or bug in 2023 that we really need to keep our eye on as it's come out and uh, surged its head again? Yeah, so there's many I can highlight, but I think there's several that really caught my attention uh, and those of different infectious disease specialists around the world. Um, there was a large outbreak of mosquito-borne chikungunya in Paraguay uh, that highlighted what appears to be a more infectious strain of that uh, infection, which uh, could spell trouble not only for those countries, but any other country that is experiencing climate change, uh, enabling vectors to sort of spread into new areas. Similarly, uh, new tick-borne viruses were discovered in Europe uh, that does implicate the risk for further spillover of these novel vectors from animals to people. Uh, and then finally, unfortunately, due to anti-vaccine uh, you know, misinformation, old scourges like measles have reemerged in pockets of the world, including here in the U.S. Parents are all of a sudden choosing not to vaccinate their children, and that puts them uh, at risk for an otherwise preventable disease. So moving forward into 2024, I think the continued proliferation of vaccine-preventable infections will unfortunately occur, and I do think we'll continue to see a rise in multidrug-resistant infections like uh, Candida auris, uh, which is a, a multidrug-resistant uh, yeast, uh, syphilis, as we've spoken about on previous shows and, and others. Well, my, my only hope as we look at 2024, I just I hope that we... We change our ways, if you will, so that these uh, does not necessarily come to pass in terms of what happens over the coming year. Chad, uh, hang on. We'll be asking you for some more future visioning uh, uh, shortly. Sure. We're going to uh, go to another topic that also made a lot of headlines in uh, 2023, and that was mental health. It seems like it really had its moment in this past year. Everyone's talking about it. There's the new 988 suicide national hotline number. We know that the rates of anxiety and depression from kids to adults are at sky high rates. Um, Dr. Hessler, uh, as you view this, how has the conversation around mental health evolved this past year? I mean, how, how do you view it uh, when I bring up these different headlines that occurred over the past year? Thanks, Dr. Chairman. So 
One of the big trends has really become destigmatizing mental health disorders. You know, I've always I've said this, and actually, I found something when I was looking online uh, and in, in an article that really we've all been through a trauma. We've all uh, and actually, so this article was written in the American Psychological Association about stress in America. And really, they describe us being through through collective national trauma. Um, we actually have all gone through COVID-19 pandemic, global conflicts, racism, racial injustice, inflation. There's climate-related disasters. All are weighing on all of us. And really, how that adds to um, mental health disorders is that we're all they're actually becoming more prominent in that people are talking about them more, but that destigmatization doesn't mean that they're becoming more prevalent per se, but that people are actually addressing them and saying, you know, I really need help. Um, you know, one person that's been in the spotlight that's come to mind is Simone Biles, sure. probably one of the greatest gymnast of all time. And she actually backed out of the Olympics, if everyone remembers, a couple years yeah. ago for her own mental health um, issues that she was going through. But just by talking mom doesn't mean that they're more prevalent, but that we're addressing them and we're finding more resources that are available to help people. And so we're really bringing it to the forefront. So I think that that's really important. I love it. And that, that example is a great one because people still talk about it because of how it was gutsy what she did. And and now she seems like she's doing pretty well. Uh, at where I, last time I checked on her uh, career uh, recently, as we get ready for another Olympics coming up. Well, she has double digit world and Olympic medals and the other gymnasts in her elite category of gymnasts. And I, I speak of this because I have a teenage daughter who's a competitive <laughs> gymnast. I mean, she really is the greatest of all time. She's at a different stratosphere, but I think it was an important example. And, you know, I mean, all the kudos to her for bringing that out and saying, you know what, I'm not going to, to participate in this high risk sport because I'm, I'm just not in the right headspace. And I really think that that's really opened up what it's given people the ability to open up that conversation and hopefully, you know, be able to talk about it, not just our physical ailments, but also our mental health things that are troubling us. Uh, Dr. Hessler, I, I'm going to just switch the topic a little bit, but kind of riff a little bit on you bring up Simone Biles, a very strong woman. And that brings us to the topic of women's health, which really also was talked a lot about over the past year. And even uh, President Biden uh, starting an entire initiative uh, to see how they can improve women's health. Uh, what progress, in your opinion, did they make in women's health in 2023, and what should we be looking for in 2024? So there is a push for women's health. Actually, the CDC puts on the um, National Women's Health Week. It actually starts on Mother's Day, aptly. Um, so it's in May. It promotes regular checkups, getting active, balanced, healthy diets, and then prioritizing mental health, like we are just talking about. But I think that this is in some ways, to be completely honest with you, Dr. Servin, this has been a complicated year in, in women's health. Um, there was um, something published in The Lancet um, in July, an editorial about women's health. Um, so, you know, some of women's rights around the world, Afghanistan being more intolerant of women in their culture. And then I think we're going to talk about this a little later. Um, the Dobbs decision, so overturning Roe v. Wade and restricting abortions has really, you know, had a different feel and people can have different opinions, of course, about this decision. So it's, um, you know, there's some ups and downs, but I actually, you know, kudos to the Biden administration because I think looking at sex specific factors is really, really important when you look at women's health. And it's not just about reproductive health, but 
those sex-related factors affect women and, and disease processes differently from cardiovascular disease to cancer to, again, mental health. And I think by putting that emphasis on looking at women's health issues, I really think that that's going to be um, an exciting initiative to follow forward as we enter into 2024. Indeed it is. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJZT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, it's our yearly medical roundtable. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Let's switch the topic just a little bit, and let's talk about health policies. You brought up uh, the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, uh, Dr. Hessler. I'm going to uh, go to Dr. Uh, Hamadi, uh, who, you know, I, it, it's almost ridiculous for me to say it's been a busy year in healthcare policy because it's been a roller coaster. Uh, the abortion ban, state by state, transgender care, healthcare workers striking. Um, Dr. Hamadi, I, I want to bring us just to one topic, though. It all started with health disparities. How have the efforts to address health disparities and inequities in access to health care gone in 2023, in your opinion? Well, that's a really good question. Thank you so much for asking it. And so, as a lot of us know, health and healthcare disparity is referring to the differences in health and healthcare between groups that really stems from the borderline inequities that exist. In fact, um, the overreaching goal for health po- uh, for healthy people 2023, 2020, 2030 is really focused on the elimination of health disparity and achieving health equity, attaining health literacy, and in improving the overall well-being of individuals in the United States. Well, achieving health equity is simpler said than done, and really it focuses on the concept of valuing everyone equally um, with focused on ongoing societal effort to address avoidable inequities. That could be historical and contemporary injustices, that could be social determinants health, that could really ways to eliminate overall disparity in health and healthcare access. One of the most fascinating ways to do this, it could be using evidence-based intervention and strategy. We've seen also um, evaluation interventions come into play um, in different states that really focus on specific minority groups to improve their health, especially in cancer prevention or cancer screening. And we've seen also um, multi-sector collaborations. We've started to see that earlier on with accountable care organizations, but we've seen it even expand beyond just the healthcare delivery aspect, but also to community partnerships, especially for -for not-for-profit hospitals, really focusing on how can they improve health of their community, and it's tied to their 501c3 tax identification. We've seen health insurance companies step up to ensure health inequity, and it is impacting their bottom line, and they are realizing healthier people can improve their bottom line. And so there is a broad range of factors um, that our healthcare system can do to ensure disparity is eliminated. But one of the most common thing, if not all of them, are social and economic inequity. In fact, the AOM really has identified that, and AOM has been fantastic in 2023. It has done the most out of any other policy advocacy group that we've seen in 2023 to improve health and equity and really eliminate it. They've increased awareness of racial and ethnic disparity policies, um, especially among the general public of what is health disparity and ethnic disparity. They've even worked on policies to strengthen patient and provider relationship, um, specifically in publicly funded health plans. And they are working on applying the same management care protection to publicly funded HMO participants that can only can also apply to private HMO participants to really focus on eliminating and closing that gap of in, of inequity. I love hearing some positive news in that direction, and may that work continue. Let me ask you uh, on a different issue, Dr. Hamadi. Uh, one of the other big headlines in 2023 is just that healthcare workers of different types. They just said enough. Uh, they uh, we saw strikes with nurses. We have seen medical residents unionize. There have been pharmacist walkouts. Uh, 
Um, what does 2024 hold when I put it that way? Is this, is, is just this, is this the beginning? Um, what's your take on it? Wow, that's a big question. Um, so there are really several factors that are contributing to what we're seeing strikes in 2023 and walkouts and it's ongoing COVID pandemic, um, increased demand in health services and health need, and also the systematic changes to support, protect and protect healthcare workers has changed. To give you a perspective of what actually happened in 2023, the US healthcare workforce have walked out and striked over 27 times across over 18 states. Wow. And so you can expand that this is a, a an endemic issue that needs to be addressed. I don't have the answer of what's going to happen sure. in 2024, but one thing that I can say for sure that something has to change because the workforce is telling you the thing, the how things are being done right now, it is not working and it will not continue to work. In fact, in the last three years, the workforce has gone through a major trauma, which is COVID-19, but has been asked and given no time to heal and no period to self-reflect on how to self-heal to move forward more effectively, efficiently, and as a whole with overall well-being. And so there are needs to, there needs to be needed changes from a research and policy perspective. We have seen focus on burnout, stress, and job satisfaction. We've also seen uh, this area of research really focusing on career satisfaction. Are people jumping ship and moving to other industries that could be less stress, more profitable, and they might be doing the same type of hair that's not within the healthcare system. And we are seeing a lot of people moving in combination to our aging workforce that is going to be retiring soon, we can't afford any more strikes. I think there is going to be somewhere in the middle between unionization, we're going to see perhaps improved work um, environments for these healthcare workers, depending on where they are. We might need to be seeing also increases in wages. So there has to be some sort of systematic approaches to improve their overall working conditions. And those conditions could be different for every type of subgroup. Got it. Let's go to yet another topic. Another big year was in the world of brain health. And um, one of the things we had, new treatments for Alzheimer's disease, they're calling it a breakthrough. There were approvals or discussions about treatments for ALS, a major brain health initiative from the American Academy of Neurology. There were a lot of health headlines related to the brain. Dr. Driskowski um, in your opinion, what was what were the most important breakthroughs or advancements in brain research, if you will, or neurological research in 2023? Well, th thanks for that interesting question. You know, as as we come to the end of the year, I tend to reflect and think about where we've been and where we're going to go with this. And I'm going to take a little bit of a broader approach to begin with, and I'll hone down to answer your question in a second. Uh, late in the summer 2022, the American Academy of Neurology came up with a, um, uh, a, 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 how should I say, an initiative called the Brain Health Initiative of the 21st Century, a call to action. And what, what experts in the field came up with was a roadmap or a platform to advise on treatments of neurologic conditions. This, this you have to have a roadmap, you have to have uh, a plan on where to go to bring things to fruition, to bring things to uh, understanding of the public in general. This is a long-term effort. It's it's a roadmap to do research, education, uh, policy, and and direct mar direct uh, information to the public. Such you know such like we see on this show. So they want to they want to. It's it's a big guideline and a big initiative to bring together experts in the field along with the public to transform where we're going and improve the trajectory of treating neurologic conditions. Thinking back, I don't know if this was with Dr. Hessler too, but I was advised not to go into neurology because you couldn't treat things. You were <laughs> diagnosing things, but you couldn't treat things. Nothing could be further from the truth at this point in time. In my career, I've seen expansion of many, many things over the years to treating things we never thought we could treat. Uh, so this is a long-term effort. It's like, a, like you know, John Kennedy in the early 60s, he's, President Kennedy said, you know, we're going to go to the moon by the, you know, end of the decade. 
in neurology, we're going to do the same thing by the end of, of 2050 is the goal on this. So some of the innovations that I've seen over this year in particular um, were were uh, uh, the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. There was a there's potentially disease modifying treatments that I know they're a little controversial on how they came in, but I think there's good good effort and uh, it's it's going to wind up that it's going to be helpful for, for many, many people in the population, especially as we get older as a society. The other thing would be stem cells for Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, if you told me 20 years ago that we we're going to treat Parkinson's disease with stem cells, uh, you know, they tried it, it kind of failed. And but now now it's the persistence and uh, big effort. It's been it's been in, you know, again, being looked at. The third thing is, I don't know if you remember when we were growing up, we had the the uh, Jerry Lewis telethon for muscular oh, yeah, dystrophy. Oh, yeah, sure. Do you, you remember that? I love those, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This this year they're actually doing they're actually inserting a gene, uh, you know, gene modification for dystrophin into muscles and making kids with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the prototypical disease process. There, they're actually helping them in a in a meaningful clinical way. So this is only going to explode. But again, I think you have to have the framework and the roadmap to get there, and all these things will help. And money doesn't hurt either, so <laughs> you got to right. have a you got to have a clear understanding of where you want to go to, and and showing success in some areas will will all make it evolve into kind of a better a better fund of knowledge and better for the patients. And you know, this like I like I said, this this show will be helpful for getting people to get on board with that. And uh, so thanks for that. I appreciate that. And and as we get to our final uh, question here, which we're going to ask all of our panel, it's going to be looking at our, your biggest 2024 predictions. I promise you we won't be playing them on the air next year to see if you're right or wrong. So take that, be gutsy. But one of the things that just occurred, Nature Medicine, famous medical journal, just published an article of 11 clinical trials that they believe will shape medicine in 2024. And what I'd like to ask each of our panelists as they look at 2024, whether it's from this article or anything else, what change in your area of expertise do you predict will occur in 2024 that we should keep our eye on in healthcare? Chad, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what, what should we be looking for in 2024 in your opinion? What are you watching for? Aside from the emerging infectious diseases that I talked about earlier, I definitely think this is going to be another breakthrough year for uh, vaccines, particularly those targeted at emerging infections or uh, some pre-existing vector-borne ones. So, for instance, on Nature's list of, of vaccines and clinical trials to look out for, uh, one of them is the R21 Matrix M malaria vaccine. Uh, that has recently sure. gone through trials uh, been approved and actually recommended for use by the World Health Organization. And what that vaccine does uh, is essentially induce long-term immunity uh, for folks in malaria endemic countries, uh, therefore prohibiting them from getting infected. So why is that so important? Because malaria continues to be one of the largest uh, killers of people by an infectious disease globally, uh, even in 2023. And in fact, malaria uh, is one of the top uh, causes for childhood mo uh, mortality uh, in the entire world still. And so with the introduction of that vaccine, which uh, University of Oxford and Novavax say they can produce and distribute for as little as three to four dollars a piece. With that introduction of this vaccine, you could be talking huge gains in terms of the battle against malaria. And so that's just one example of a vaccine that's coming to market that I think will have major effects. And this is all brought on, of course, because of uh, recent advances with mRNA vaccine technology uh, and just the amount of money put into the COVID-19 pandemic that's now being put to cutting-edge science research. That is a huge topic, and I know we'll look, we'll bring you back, Chad, to talk about it over in 2024. I appreciate that. Dr. Hessler, what do you see in 2024? What What's getting your attention or as a prediction for next year? Thanks, Dr. Servin. So I actually um, also 
thought that that article and kind of the excitement with this being in phase three trials with this malaria vaccine is pretty exciting. But I guess in my field um, of neurology, and I'm not uh, trying not to reiterate everything that was just said, but it is exciting that we can treat neurologic diseases. Dr. Groskowski was uh, saying that I was also told the same thing when I was entering neurology residency about 20 years ago of, you know, it's interesting to make a diagnosis, but you can't treat anything. And in our field of neurology, really that has changed. And, and I actually think that this new disease modifying medication is the most for Alzheimer's disease. And there's several of them on the horizon. This is actually the first medication that we've had available in 20 years. And 20 years ago, it, was, it wasn't a disease-altering medication. And now we're actually going after the pathology of what we think causes the disease to get rid of that pathology in the brain to hopefully alter this horrible disease that is actually the number one disease, the number one most costly disease with a caregiver burden is Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. So actually impacting this disease is really exciting that we can actually start to change and maybe even you know prevent this disease. And it's professionally as a neurologist, but I also have a personal family history of Alzheimer's. So it's both professionally and personally exciting on the horizon that these medications are here. As Dr. George was saying, um, there is it's uh, there are some issues with how they got approved, but again, we're starting to make progress, and, and this is an ongoing, you know, in evolution. So, you know, in in neurology, that's just exciting that, and we're also prioritizing you know, brain health. So I'm just excited about that in 2024. Love it. Thank you. Dr. Hamadi, what are you seeing in the world of health policy in 2024? It's So out of the 11 trials and really kind of the direction of where we're seeing things right now is us moving from predictive modeling to machine learning and AI. And I think that's going to be a significant thing that we see in 2024 that's going to change how healthcare is delivered. One of the most interesting ones that I've seen was the machine learning for patient triage. And it was really doing is predicting whether these patients coming into the emergency department, are they going to be readmitted or are they going to have a 31-day mortality? And that's really significant for health policy in the U.S. because a lot of hospitals are being penalized for 30-day readmission Sorry. and mortality Sorry. under CMS's hospital reduction, a readmission reduction program, as well as their hospital value-based purchasing program. And so if the hospitals are able to better predict if these patients are going to be readmitted or have a high mortality rate, they are able to address those issues earlier on to prevent these, it will not only improve patient safety and patient care, but it will also improve hospitals' performance on these metrics for quality measures. Great 2024-point AI was definitely coming up. And last but not least, Dr. Draz, last word. What do you see in 2024 that you're excited about in healthcare? Um, I'll just reiterate what Dr. Hessler said. It's a very exciting time for neurology. So I'm going to take a little step outside of my comfort zone. And on the list, there was a T-cell vaccine for HIV. I remember my very first patient on, as an intern back in the day, I had a patient on the wards with, with the dark days of HIV. And we said, wouldn't it be great to have a vaccine for HIV? Yes. HIV still is a scourge around the world. And, uh, you know, if we can make a vaccine for that, um, the, the patient that I met was Giovanni. And Giovanni gave me a bud vase at the end of, end of his day that we got him out of the hospital and had a quality of life. I still have that vase today, and I'm still waiting for the vaccine. So hopefully this is, this is that time when we perfect the vaccine and can help, help these people around the world with HIV prevention. What a beautiful message for 2024. I'm going to let that be our last word. Uh, we've been talking to an amazing group of futurists uh, and medical uh, uh, physicians and policymakers uh, who are helping us uh, understand 2023 and 2024 healthcare and review. We've been talking to Dr. Joseph Draskowski, a professor of neurology, practicing neurologist at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Dr. Amy Hessler, another practicing neurologist, but here in Jacksonville, 
Florida. Mr. Chad Nielsen, Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacksonville and an epidemiologist in infectious diseases. And Dr. Hanadi Hamadi. She is an associate professor at Brooks College of Health and very involved in health policy. To each of you, thank you so much. And most importantly, Happy New Year. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks Happy Joe. New Year to you. Hey, thanks so much, guys. And up next, the health powers of placebos. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? One of the often ignored modern tenets that underpin our entire healthcare system are placebo-controlled trials. Our next guest wants us to better understand the concept of placebos. He'll help us explore the science of placebos and nocebos, illuminating their transformative potential in healthcare. Stick with us as we transcend conventional wisdom, offering a fresh perspective on healing and the untapped possibilities within the realm of medical science. Joining us for this is Professor Jeremy Howick. He is a clinical epidemiologist and philosopher of science. He researches evidence-based medicine, clinical empathy, and the philosophy of medicine including the use of placebos in clinical practice and trials. He's the author of over 200 peer-reviewed papers, as well as two books, The Philosophy of Evidence-Based Medicine in 2011 and Dr. Yu in 2017. His main post now is at the University of Leicester, where he's the director of the Stony Gate Center for Empathy and Healthcare. He has a terrific new book called The Power of Placebos, and how the science of placebos and nocebos can improve healthcare. Professor Howick, welcome to our program. It's great to be here on this fantastic podcast. What's health got to do with it? Thank you for having me. Well, we love having you here and thank you for joining us. I know you're in the United Kingdom and we just appreciate your time. I'm curious as we start off our conversation, how did you become interested in the topic of placebos and its impact on healthcare. I used to do a sport called rowing that some of your listeners might be familiar with, Joe, and I was competing. I wasn't bad in all modesty. And, you know, when you're when you win a medal, sometimes they pull you off the podium to test you for banned substances. And in those conditions, some people get a get a positive test. They claim they say, well, no, listen, um, I was just taking a medicine that my doctor prescribed, and that might be true sometimes. But in, in any case, in those circumstances, you'd be, you're very careful about whatever you take. At the same time, I, I developed an allergy to a cat that my mother bought for my sister, and I was suffering. I couldn't sleep properly. My training was suffering. I was becoming very anxious. I went to see the doctor. They poked me 30 times, and they said, you do have an allergy to a cat, and here's a treatment. It's a nasal spray, and I read the ingredients to be sure it wasn't something wrong. And one of the ingredients was corticosteroid. I didn't know at the time that the nasal spray corticosteroid would not lead to a positive test, but I didn't know. And as I was trying to find out, my symptoms were getting worse. I was getting more stressed. And as a last um, resort, I accepted my mother's suggestion to visit a herbal doctor. I thought that's going to be rubbish. It's not going to work, but I think I'll, I'll try anything. I went there. I thought it was going to be crystals and all kinds of weird stuff. It was nothing of the sort. It's just there was a cleaner waiting room than most. (laughs) And instead of having 10 minutes with me, like most doctors, she spent 45 minutes not just discussing the symptoms of my allergies, but the stresses associated with high-level rowing. And at the end, she said, well, um, keep your head and neck warm, which is just common sense in the winter in Canada, where where I was. I'm from Canada. And then drink ginger tea. I thought to myself, well, ginger tea, that can't possibly work, but it can't be bad for me either. After all, uh, billions of people drink tea with ginger in it. I missed one of my five fruit and veggie days, so I'll try it. I tried it, 
And within three days, my allergy symptoms all but disappeared. And that got my geeky academic mind whizzing and took me on a journey to find out what is a placebo? Do they work? Are they evidence-based and so on? Spoiler, spoiler alert, I never found out if ginger tea was a placebo. I still don't know. <laughs> but in any case, how would you find out if ginger tea was a placebo? You have to do a placebo-controlled trial comparing real ginger tea with something that looked, tasted, and smelled like ginger tea but wasn't a ginger tea and didn't have any other effects. So it's almost impossible to find out. <laughs> That's how I got involved in it. That's that a, is incredible. One of the reasons I, yeah. I, I love the I love the story because because a part of me was wondering, do I need to get some ginger tea when I go home today? But but, but now I, I I get the picture. Go for it, Joe. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so so Jeremy, define for us all because um, some people may want to understand the term. What is placebo and what's nocebo? What 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 do they mean when you say those words? The word placebo comes from Latin, means I shall please. So a placebo is a, a substance that doesn't have any direct effect on your disorder. It's used often a sugar pill, but that can work via mind-body self-healing mechanisms. So if the doctor gives the placebo and gives a positive message alongside the placebo and so on, then they can, it can have an effect. A nocebo also comes from Latin, means I shall harm. It's the placebo's naughty cousin. So whereas the placebo... And placebo effects have beneficial effects. Nocebos and no, nocebo effects are negative. They're, they're kind of in the worst case. You can think of something like voodoo death, if something someone believes very strongly and they, they get cursed, but then their beliefs can lead them to have, even in some cases, allegedly a heart attack and so on. But much more commonly, things like nausea, headache, um, tummy ache, backache, and so on, if they believe that something is going to, uh, that the pill is going to cause harm or something is going to cause harm. You're 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 triggering me because I know that when I give a prescription to a patient and I if they read the side effect profile first, I I yeah. can almost guarantee I'm going to have more problems than whether they hear there's an effectiveness side. Uh, if if they read that first, in other words, the expectation can guide what happens. Yes, there's a story about a true story. Mister, it's a reporter in, in a medical journal. A guy they don't give his real name, Mister A. Um, he showed up at the hospital, collapsed, said, please help me, I've just overdosed. And he collapsed and a pill bottle fell out of his pocket. Um, his, his, his blood pressure was very, very low, you know, almost almost dead, you know, barely alive. His heart rate was high, though. He was sweating, he was clammy, he was cold. And the doctors were trying to save him, gave him some water to beef up his blood pressure and yeah. so on, and had a careful look at the pill bottle. And it was part of a clinical trial of a new antidepressant. And they called the the, 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 the trial um, investigators to come and see it because they, they didn't know what it was. The trial investigators showed up and said, they, they decoded the, um, the pill bottle with the code. So this guy got a placebo. He just overdosed on placebos, on basically <laughs> sugar pills. When they told Mr. A that, he expressed tearful relief but got better right away. His blood pressure normal, heart rate normal. So this is an exaggerated case of where negative expectations um, led to a dramatic effect, but, but you know, they're much more common, they're less dramatic, but they are very common. Even aspirin costs you a couple of bucks at the pharmacy. If you were to read this, the kind of side effects, you'd never touch this, touch That's it. right. That's right. Jeremy, one of the things that I, I, I noticed, and I know someone may have a question, is that a lot of the conditions that you're referring to in terms of, of these responses are things such that have a subjective uh, inner quality to their to them, meaning uh, pain, uh, mood. Not that those are subjective, but that there's some level that you're the one, uh, you know, feeling it, and and not that you're seeing a blood level or something along those lines. Is are is is am I right? Are there specific medical conditions where the placebo effect is way more pronounced as opposed to other things, or am I, or am I misreading that? Absolutely, Joe. Now, if you get in a car accident, you don't want anyone messing around with placebos. Right. You don't, even, don't even care if they're nice to you or not. Right? right. Thankfully, those are the exceptions. For the vast majority of cases, placebos can have an effect, even for mechanical things. True story. These guys in Australia were doing um, using vertebro vertebroplasty for um, fractured vertebrae, so broken bone in the back. Right. And the, the, the vertebral plasty is they take a big needle, they inject some glue, some cement, and they glue it together. 
Now, they did one with this guy, a bad fracture. He couldn't walk properly. They did, did the procedure, and he came back for his checkup three weeks later. They did the x-ray again. They realized they, they put the the injection in the wrong bone, the bone that wasn't broken, but he got better anyway. They go, huh. Oh, what happened here? Then they did a placebo-controlled trial where the people with the bone fractures, vertebral fractures, half of them got the real vertebroplasty, half of them got a placebo. They just, they just poked them with a needle in the back but didn't give any glue. The placebo one worked just as well but had fewer side effects because sometimes the glue leaks, et cetera, and causes adverse events. Not another example, um, Bruce Mosley, a doctor of the Houston Rockets, he noticed that different basketball players with the same physical lesions, you could see them with your eyes on an X-ray in the knee, would express them very differently. So he did also did a placebo-controlled trial. Half of them got real knee arthroscopy, where they did a lavage, they cleaned up the mess you could see in the sure. bone and, and, and the cartilage. Half of me just did a little incision and sewed it back up. The ones with the incision did just as well. And you can see them interview <laughs> one fantastic guy, Eutenio Perez was a, you see them they're interviewing him and they, they go there with the TV crew to tell him, hey, you know what? It's a year later. And before the, before the operation, he had such bad pain in the knee. He wasn't responding to maximal drugs. He couldn't walk. And they took this, listen to Eutenio, they said, you know what? Um, you got to, you, did, you didn't get the real operation. You got the placebo. He started to cry. Oh my God. Like, I couldn't even walk. He said, now I can play basketball. And I, I, I even dance. And his wife is there. She, she says, yeah, now he dances all night. Um, so, so it's not true that it's just psychological, so-called psychological things. And the reason people get hung up on that, Joe, is they, they have a mistaken conception of the psychological and the physiological as, um, disconnected that they're together there's nothing is purely psychological so for the pl placebo surgery so-called placebo surgery but i don't think it's a real placebo you've got the wound healing cascade so if someone gives you a fake surgery they just cut you and sew you back up your body doesn't know if it was a scratch that you that you got on a poisonous thorn as you're running through the bushes escaping from a wolf or a friendly doctor so the response is the same more blood vessels go to the area more tissue gets built um, you know, blood cells, the, your, your immune system gets activated. And there's some, the, the immune, the human immune system is amazing. That's my favorite part of it is that I thought it was a joke name. I thought the thing that NK cells, I said, what are NK cells? Natural killer cells. Sounds like a movie, like yes, that kind it of does. James Bond movie. <laughs> yes. That's the scientific name. For these are nat these are literally natural killer cells that go and wipe out bad cells, including cancer cells, by the way. Wow. So, so the human and the immune system can be affected by so-called psychological states. If someone is under stress, the immune system gets suppressed. It's a bit more complicated than that, and you, you probably know, might know more about that, but in general, it affects it. And the reason is simple. Let's say in evolution, if you're being chased by a wild boar or a wolf or a saber-toothed tiger, it's not worth it to spend any energy fighting infections in that moment. You should spend all your energy running away from the threat or fighting it. Right. Then when you get back, if you if you survive the fight and you get back to the cave, then you can relax and activate an, a full immune response. But we felt that's even in modern times. Many people remember after an exam, they get sick. But why didn't they get sick before the exams? Because their body said, you know what? I can't get sick. I've got to pass the exam or my... I won't, my dad won't pay for my, right, you know, school right. or something like that, or I won't pass medical school. So the virus or the bacteria was already there, but the body just told the immune system, stop, don't give all your resources to the brain to pass the exam. But now that you've, now that you've done the exam, you can relax and, we're, and you're going to be in bed for two days. It's so interesting how this, how, how it all connects, as you said. We only have a moment left, um, uh, Jeremy, and, and I want to make sure I get this question in. Um, you are in this position now where uh, you want to get healthcare to understand the use of placebos and incorporate this. How can healthcare institutions and policymakers leverage the insights from your book to better integrate this science into modern healthcare? We're doing it here at the University of Leicester. We are changing the medical school curriculum to make sure that students understand the importance of this, understand and get skilled up to express empathy. It's not just about memorizing the facts. That's important. But we, we get real patients, for example, into the room during the teaching of the cardiovascular system so the students can latch on the facts to real human stories. And that 
that makes them never forget the importance of the human person they're talking to that they can speak to as a whole person and that and the way they speak to them can have a beneficial effect so that the way we're doing that is with empathy into the medical school curriculum and beyond we're delivering empathic leadership empathic we're changing to make empathic systems um ultimately though i think that we have to to, to really leverage this stuff joe we've got to move beyond the fee for service model to a value-based healthcare right. system where right. doctors are not paid based on how many tests and treatments they give. They get paid based on how much better their patients get. In that situation, it'd be much easier to leverage this stuff. That's just a short way, way of answering your question, but I love it. that question. I love it because that is the perfect message to leave on uh, this particular interview. I could spend hours talking to you about all of this. Uh, Jeremy, this has been an amazing uh, book and uh, just a great discussion on something that's very eye-opening to me. I just really appreciate you joining us. Joe, thank you for doing what you're doing. God bless you, and I hope to see you in Florida one day. Absolutely. We'd love to have you here. We've been talking to uh, Professor Jeremy Howick. He is the director of the Stony Gate Center for Empathy and Healthcare at the University of Leicester in uh, the United Kingdom. He has this terrific new book by Johns Hopkins Press entitled The Power of Placebos and How the Science of Placebos and Nocebos Can Improve Healthcare. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is on brain health with the president-elect of the American Academy of Neurology, as well as the rising rates of veteran suicides. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904 358 6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Happy 2024, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.